This audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to Session 17, Letter vs. Spirit, Part C, from the series Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Sur Fellowship. All right. So we're going to continue... Uh, session 17, we're looking at th- this concept of letter versus spirit, uh, examining the, the passages where Paul is co- contrasts these two terms, the letter and the spirit. And so this is part three. And uh, we've already looked at, um, basically, we've been focusing on overcoming misinterpretations of certain passages in Scripture that portray this contrast, right? Uh, The letter and the spirit. Spirit, uh, so the first misconception we looked at is seeing the Holy Spirit as somehow opposed to following rules. So we talked about how there is a legitimate legalism that we need to avoid as believers. But following the Spirit is not inherently opposed to following rules. That rules can be a good thing, right? Rules are a good thing when they're God's rules. <laughs> and we're supposed to follow them. And in fact, the Holy Spirit empowers us to follow his rules. Um, the, the other thing we looked at is the idea of the Holy Spirit as being opposed to human effort and intellect. That's what we talked about last week. Um, Certainly, God often works in ways that defy our human reasoning or effort, but following the Spirit is not inherently opposed to our thinking capacity any more than it is inherently opposed to our feelings. God wants to take over our whole being. Likewise, following the Spirit doesn't erase the need for human effort, but rather it rather empowers our effort beyond what we can do naturally. So today I want to look at the passages um, that deal with this in more detail. And while we do that, I want to address one final potential misinterpretation related to this. uh, That is the idea that the spirit is inherently antithetical to Torah. Of course, for us in the Messianic Torah movement, this is kind of old hat for us. We know, obviously, that the Spirit is not opposed to Torah. But we're going to look at some passages where that has been the common interpretation, uh, is that there's this antithesis. And it's a common thinking um, that you see among some Christian groups that the Mosaic Law and the Holy Spirit are mutually incompatible. Right? This, this thinking is based on a number of scripture passages. We'll take a quick look at some. I don't know how well you can read those. So Romans uh, 2.29, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Right? So Paul's contrasting circumcision of the, of, uh, the heart versus circumcision of the flesh. He's contrasting the spirit with the letter. And you might think, based on this verse, that what Paul is doing is he contrasting the Holy Spirit and the Torah. 
That's how many people have interpreted that verse. Romans 7, verse 6. Uh, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the letter. That's the same, same Greek word there, grama, letter, or we get the word grammar. Um, so same word as in Romans 2.28, grama. Um, again, a lot of people would interpret this to mean that somehow following the Mosaic law is antithetical to following the Spirit, and that the Spirit and the letter, this contrast means that, you know, the letter is the Torah, and that's not what we're supposed to follow. Romans 8, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So, which law is which? Well, some people would interpret wrongly, <laughs> the law of sin and death as a reference to following Torah. But you can see why, how they might arrive at that sense of contrast, right? You've got the spirit on one side and the law of sin and death on the other side. Well, technically, there's the law of the spirit of life. So there's two Torahs here, right? You know, we'll, get, we'll come back to that later. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, um, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What is Paul talking about there? Galatians 3, uh, 2 to 4, or verse 5, I guess. Uh, so let me ask you this only. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit, who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So it's, this seems to imply an antithesis between works of the law and walking in the Spirit by faith. And then finally, Galatians 5, verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So it seems like a contrast between Spirit and law, right? Finally, <laughs> Galatians 5, 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, so we can put this list of passages, string them together like this and make it sound like walking in the Spirit and following Torah are mutually incompatible pursuits, right? That's the way it appears when, based on these translations and based on some of the common interpretations of these passages. So a dispensationalist interpretation of these passages would posit a stark contrast between the old covenant, as characterized by law, and the new covenant, which is characterized by the spirit. More than that, there is the common idea that something decisive changed in the manner in which God interacts with his people between the old and the new, and that the Holy Spirit is something new and different from the way God worked in the Old Testament. Uh, we're not going to cover this subject from every angle today. We could do an entire series just on this, Old Covenant versus New Covenant, what all that means. There have been series done on that and other 
places. Um, but the goal today is to try and understand some of these passages better. In particular, I want to focus on 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, and hopefully that will become evident as we dive into it. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want to put one thing to rest, and that is the question, did the Holy Spirit exist before Acts chapter 2? Yeah, obviously. Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and cameo appearance, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, right? Wow, he, he was there. Okay, yeah, some, some people would say, yeah, yeah, uh, this, obviously the Spirit existed, but, but um, the Spirit didn't really dwell inside of people in the Old Covenant. That's a New Covenant thing for the Spirit to dwell inside people. I've heard, I've heard people say that um, in the Old Testament, Okay, yeah, we see people who get empowered by the Spirit, but on all those cases, the Spirit only comes, like, upon them or clothes them. The Spirit's outside of the person. The Spirit doesn't actually go into the person. It's an external thing. And apparently that's different. Um, okay, well, to put that to rest, here's a very brief word study. Uh, we won't go into all the details, but uh, you can see some of the references there on your screen. So we see in the Tanakh instances where the Spirit comes upon someone. uses the, word, the Hebrew word al, upon. Uh, we see the Spirit falling on people. And clothing people. See the Spirit impelling people or stirring people, the Spirit coming or prevailing over people, the Spirit being poured out on people, and we see the Spirit in people. And yes, we do see people filled with the Spirit. Exodus 28.3 uh, 31, 3, 35, 31, Deuteronomy 34, 9, Micah 3, 8. Yeah, anyway, you get the point. So I'm suggesting that these are all just creative ways of basically saying the same thing. That when God's Spirit works on people, I mean, we have to come up with some sort of metaphor to try and explain it in human language, right? God's Spirit clothes us. He falls on us, he breathes into us, he fills us, he... All these different things are metaphors for what God's Spirit does. I don't think we're supposed to take our microscope and say, oh, well, for, for Gideon, he was just clothed with the Spirit, whereas Joseph had the Spirit in him, so, so that's different. I don't think that's the point. I don't think we're supposed to say there's a difference between all these things. And uh, we could, I don't have this on the screen, but we could do the same sort of word study in the apostolic scriptures, right? Uh, and see what happened in the book of Acts, in the epistles. We see phrases like the Holy Spirit falling upon people, people being filled with the Holy Spirit, and these are used interchangeably. 
right? It's not, there isn't supposed to be a difference from one to the other, right? And it's ex the exact same kind of languages used both in the Tanakh and in the apostolic scriptures. So I'm not going to belabor this point anymore because this is something we've, that has repeatedly come up throughout this course. Uh, and it was one of the founding uh, uh, principles that we embarked on this course in back in the introduction, session one. Uh, we're trying to approach this topic of the Holy Spirit from a Messianic Torah perspective. And one of the unique uh, things that I think we bring to the table is seeing the Tanakh as a valid source of informing our pneumatology, a valid source of telling us what it means to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, right? Okay, so this idea of a clear contrast between Old Covenant and New Covenant based on the existence or non-existence of the Spirit is false. Um, now, to be sure, if you go back to session four, I guess it was, uh, and session five, we talked about how in the Tanakh there's this clear expectation for a greater outpouring of the Spirit in the Messianic era. This was something that everyone's looking forward to, right? Everyone's expecting that in the future, when Messiah comes, there will be this increased activity of the Holy Spirit like never before. But this certainly doesn't mean that he was inactive prior to Yeshua. Okay? Um, yeah, we won't delve into that anymore. I do want to now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is kind of what we'll focus most of our attention on for the rest of today with a bunch of rabbit trails here and there. But let's look at 2 Corinthians 3 and see what it is that Paul is saying here. So let's, let's go ahead and start in verse 1, and we'll read the whole chapter, but I might stop here and there. Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Um, yeah, so in context, <laughs> Paul has just been talking about uh, his uh, relationship with the community of believers in Corinth, and uh, it seems there is a, it was a bit of a rocky relationship. If you read through both First and Second Corinthians and kind of... Uh, read between the lines a bit, you see there's a, a very interesting story going on that uh, that community in Corinth went, was going through some difficult experiences and um, some of them were becoming a little antagonistic toward Paul, it seems. So Paul writes this letter and he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And you kind of think, uh, you, you kind of were. <laughs> but... Um, Anyway, that's besides the point. So Paul goes on. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So he's like, do we need references? You know, as an apostle, do I need references in order to prove that I'm an apostle, in order to prove that, you know, I know what I'm talking about or that I'm, I'm preaching the truth of Yeshua correctly or these sorts of things? And Paul says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. 
and you show that you are a letter from Messiah delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Does that sound familiar? Paul's alluding to a passage of Scripture. We'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Messiah toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. There's our contrast, the letter and the Spirit, right? So then Paul goes on to develop this, in in much stronger terms he says now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the israelites could not gaze at moses's face because of its glory which was being brought to an end will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory indeed in this case what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it for if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites not, might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were, were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Messiah is it taken away. Yes, to this day, what, whenever Moses is read, and a veil lies, lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Okay. Um, so a couple things that are going on here. Paul's making some allusions to a whole bunch of different passages here and we'll try and pick apart what some of those passages are uh, but notice one of the things he's doing is he's he mentions this new covenant right so in verse 6 he made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant and then notice a few verses later down in verse uh Verse 14, he says, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, so there's this, this contrast, Old Covenant, New Covenant. And actually, by the way, this is the only place in the whole Bible where the word Old Covenant is found. So, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But first of all, the first illusion that I want to look at is Paul talks about tablets of stone versus tablets of human hearts and new covenant. And what, what, uh, what passages of scripture might he be alluding to here? Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. He's almost quoting these passages very strong illusion. 
Okay, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There's that key word, the, a new covenant. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one know his neighbor, teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And then he goes on to talk about the restoration of Jerusalem, verse 38 and following. Uh, the restoration of Israel. Okay, the other passage then is Ezekiel 36. Let's start in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I shall sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So there's this promise of the spirit. Um, I believe it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to, keep, to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it abundant, lay no famine on you. I will make the fruit of the tree increase. Um, it goes on. So, we have embedded in this promise of restoration to Israel, this promise of, although it doesn't use the, the term new covenant here, it's very similar stuff to what's going on in Jeremiah, right? And so, so Paul, in 2 Corinthians 3, he's alluding to, you know, the tablet of the stone versus the human hearts, right? The heart of stone versus the heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36. And he's talking about the new covenant Going back to Jeremiah 31. So there's this clear, this clear thing going on where Paul's referencing the new covenant here, right? So um, let's talk about the new covenant for a little bit. What, what exactly is involved with the new covenant? I think this is something where there's a lot of, a lot of confusion among a lot of believers because we assume the new covenant is the new testament maybe right i mean that's this is this is this passage of paul is where we get the language new testament old testament for our bibles right so the the new testament new covenant that's that's all about jesus the old covenant that's all about moses and such but let's look at what the new covenant is actually about Right? So the new covenant involves forgiveness of sin in Jeremiah 31, right? It is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not with Gentiles, right? Because Gentiles are by nature, as Paul says, excluded from citizenship with Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. It's only through Messiah that we're able to have access to the covenants, right? The new covenant involves the people of Israel. Uh, the new covenant involves Torah written on our hearts, 
It's not the replacement for the Torah. It does not negate the importance of obeying God's commandments. It's through the new covenant that God's commandments are fully realized. True obedience is fully realized, right? New covenant results in everyone knowing the Lord, right? They'll all know me from the least to the greatest. The knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah eleven nine. And part and parcel with the new covenant is the restoration of Israel and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, according to Jeremiah 31. How many of these things have happened already? We're still waiting on some of those, right? Uh, Ezekiel 36, uh, the new covenant, not specifically mentioned, but implied. The spirit is specifically linked, as well as the circumcision of the heart. And again, the result is that tr is true obedience to God's commandments, which happens in conjunction with the restoration of Israel at the end of her exile. It's specifically linked with a return to the land and the rebuilding of the cities. So again, this hasn't been fulfilled in its entirety yet. So based on these two passages, we can say the new covenant involves forgiveness and purification from sin, the Holy Spirit being poured out, the knowledge of God becomes universal, the restoration of Israel, return to the land, rebuilding Jerusalem, and God's people empowered to keep his Torah. So these are the promises of the new covenant. From these passages, we see that the new covenant involves some major messianic, messianic expectations that have existed at the heart of the Jewish people uh, all along. This includes God filling his people with his spirit. But I think we would all agree, by no means has this been fulfilled in its entirety at present. What about the blood of the new covenant? Matthew 26, 28, Luke 22, 20. Um, Yeshua takes the cup at Passover, says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. What do we make of that? Well, compare that with Exodus 24, verse 8. Exodus 24, verse 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. It's very similar to what Yeshua says at Passover, right? This is the blood of the, instead of saying just of the covenant, Yeshua says of the new covenant, right? So what does Hebrews tell us? Among other things, Hebrews tells us that every covenant has to be ratified with blood, right? In order for a covenant to be sealed, there has to be some sort of blood involved, right? So what is the blood that ratifies the new covenant? The blood of Yeshua, right? What was the blood that ratified the covenant in Exodus 24? He sent young men from the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw on the altar. Right? So it's oxen. <laughs> that was the blood of oxen. Uh, and that was the blood that ratified the covenant between God and Israel at Mount Sinai. Right? 
the blood that secures, that seals, that makes it a done deal for the new covenant is the blood that Yeshua shed of himself on the cross, right? Which is represented in that cup at Passover. So the new covenant is ratified in Yeshua's blood. This doesn't necessarily mean that every aspect of the new covenant has been fulfilled. In my opinion, I think that's pretty obvious that not every aspect of the new covenant has been fulfilled. But for us, it's as, it's as good as done because of Yeshua's sacrifice. We know that all these other things will happen. We know that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all Israel. We know that the knowledge of God will become universal. We know the restoration of Israel will take place. The city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And we know that God's people will be empowered to keep his Torah because of what Yeshua has done. So, Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out. Was that a complete fulfillment of the new covenant promise? No. But I think it was definitely a first fruits. I mean, this is, you know, the beginning of some of these promises being implemented in the world. So, anyway, all this to say, for in terms of helping us understand 2 Corinthians 3, it's an important point is that in both Jeremiah, and is, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, the spirit or the new covenant is not in antithesis to Torah, but rather is about enabling God's people to keep the Torah. Right? The, the, we can't equate the Torah with the old covenant because the Torah is also in the new covenant. The Torah is in both. <laughs> right? That's, that's one of the reasons why I take issue with this, the common designation for sections of our Bible as Old, Old Testament and New Testament. In what sense is the, are the apostolic writings the new covenant? I mean, they talk about the new covenant, but so does the Tanakh. Jeremiah talks about the new covenant too, right? In what sense is the Torah or the Tanakh the old covenant? Well, it's older than the New Testament, so <laughs> the, well, maybe we should call it the Old Testament and the Young Testament. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, yeah, it's, I, I, I always have felt a bit squeamish about these terms since we started uh, understanding the New Covenant this way. So that's one of the reasons why in this series I use the term Tanakh to talk about the what is commonly called the Old Testament instead. But anyway, that's, that's a mostly semantics issue. Have you ever heard people argue that when Jeremiah says the Torah will be written on our hearts, that that means, well, you don't actually have to keep it. It'll be written on your heart so you don't have to keep it. Have you ever heard anyone try to argue something like that? Yeah, some people try. <laughs> A for effort. I don't know. <laughs> F plus. Yeah, you failed, but I yeah, still love you. <laughs> Valiant effort. Um, the Torah that's written on our heart is the same Torah that's written in the Bible. It's not going to contradict it, right? And 
Jeremiah didn't make up this language about the Torah being written on our hearts. He got, I mean, just like Paul didn't make up this language about something being written on tablets of human hearts. He got it from Jeremiah. Jeremiah didn't actually make it up either. Where does it come from? Well, I'm thinking of an earlier biblical precedent for that kind of language. Any guesses? How about Deuteronomy chapter 6? These words of mine shall be, where? On your heart, right? I mean, we read this every week. You'd think I'd have it memorized by now. <laughs> but listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's the new covenant. The new covenant promise right there in the Shema. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. It's going to be a universal thing. If everyone did this, if everyone was teaching their children this, if everyone was talking about it all the time, knowledge of God would be universal. Fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the new covenant. And um, one of the things we talked about when we were looking at the Spirit in the Tanakh is this end-time expectation of the Holy Spirit coming in the Messianic era, the Holy Spirit coming as uh, a harbinger of Messiah, as a, you know, inaugurating this kingdom of God, right? And so we could say the Holy Spirit is a sign of the new covenant. Uh, and... Paul describes the Holy Spirit as being given to us as a deposit, a down payment of something greater that is yet to come. Um, you see that in a couple places. I don't have the references here at the moment. But the, you know, the rundown of all this is that the best is yet to come. <laughs> in, the in the Messianic era, the Spirit will be poured out in greater measure, and the Spirit will write the Torah on our hearts. We will instinctively and willingly and um, delightfully obey God's Torah. Our sinful nature will be subdued. And this hasn't happened yet. As we've been learning in our discussion on flesh versus spirit. And in this session as well. Anyway, all this is important for helping us understand the new covenant. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So Paul, he says that God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Then he goes on and he uses some, some language. So, so here's the contrast, right? Letter and spirit. One of them gives life. One of them brings Death, right? Then he talks about the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone. So we've got the, all these terms that he's already been alluding to. Stone, stony hearts, letters, right? It came with glory, and he talks about that. And then he talks about how the ministry of the Spirit will have even more glory. Verse 9, if the ministry of condemnation, so now it's not just the ministry of death, it's also the ministry of condemnation. 
And he contrasts that with the ministry of righteousness. Um, what was being brought to an end versus what is permanent. So what's the difference between these two? I'm going to suggest that it's not that one is talking about the Torah and the other is talking about uh, the New Testament. I'm going to suggest that the Torah is in both, but that the difference is how we approach the Torah, our relationship to the Torah. Paul's doing a, a midrash on Exodus 34 here. Anyone remember what happens at the end of Exodus 34? Moses has just gone up the Mount, Mount Sinai a second time to get a second set of tablets. Why did he have to get a second set of tablets? He's, he smashed the first ones, right? <laughs> because of what? Because of Israel's sin, right? Israel entered into this covenant with God in Exodus 24 and failed to live up to their end of the agreement. They broke the covenant. Moses smashing the tablets wasn't, uh, was, was only a physical, uh, visible sign of what had already happened, what Israel had already done. They had broken the covenant. And so, and, and one of the results of all that was 3,000 people died. Uh, interesting, how many people does it mention in Acts chapter 2 when the spirits poured out? 3,000 people were saved. Interesting contrast. Do you think there's a coincidence there? One resulted in death, 3,000 people dying. One resulted in life, 3,000 people being saved. Okay, so in Ex Exodus 34, at the end of the chapter, so Moses, the, the covenant is renewed. Moses gets this fresh new set of tablets written on with the finger of God, with the Ten Commandments. And he comes down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony. And Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Verse 34 Moses, when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Okay, so Moses, when he goes to the Lord, the veil is removed. When he goes to the people, the veil gets put back on, right? Paul sees in this, I think, a number of things, but I think one of the things he sees in this is the mystery of Messiah being concealed from the Jewish people, right? And this is something he talks about also in Romans 9, 10, and 11, 
this mystery that why is it that the majority of Israel did not recognize Yeshua and accept him? Well, Paul says, to this day, a veil remains over them. There's this veil between the people and Messiah. So Paul's saying, you know, even in that situation where there was death as a result of the stubbornness of the people, there is still glory, right? Moses' face was shining the radiance of God's glory. And it says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3 that the glory was being brought to an end. Um, there's a couple different ways we could understand this phrase. Tim Haig makes an interesting suggestion. It's the Greek word katarumenon. Um, and uh, Tim Haig suggests that we understand this as referring not to, not, not that the glory was being, like, was fading away. I think a lot of translations will say that the glory was fading away. Well, it doesn't say that in Exodus. It doesn't say anywhere in Exodus that Moses' face was, that the glory was fading and that Moses put the thing on to show that, you know, so that people wouldn't see that his glory was fading. And, and that word, katarromanon, doesn't really mean fading away. It means being uh, like brought to an end, basically. Ineffective. Rendered ineffective. Yeah, that's another way you could translate it. So what Tim Haig suggests is that this term should be understood as this is what the veil would do. The veil would make the glory not visible to the Israelites, right? So it wasn't that the glory was fading from Moses' face, it's that he would put a veil so that they wouldn't see the glory. It was being, it was, it was veiled from them, right? And, he, and so then Paul says, the ministry of the Spirit will not have much even greater glory. Now, I know at first as we're reading this, it sounds like Paul's just, he's comparing his own ministry with, with Moses. I'm not convinced that that's all Paul's talking about here. I think Paul has in mind more than just his own ministry. He's thinking of the restoration of Israel. Remember what he says in Romans 11? If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, meaning the Jewish people, if their rejection of Yeshua is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul's thinking forward to the glory of the restoration of Israel as opposed to looking, you know, the example of death coming to the people of Israel for their rebellion, for them failing to walk in God's commandments, for having hard hearts. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, one of the things that comes out in, um, in Exodus, well, in what we read today, but also in Deuteronomy, it comes up how the people were afraid to approach the Lord, right? And they asked Moses, you be our intermediary. And, you know, in one sense, it's easy for us to interpret that as, oh, those silly Israelites, you know, they were giving up intimacy with God. They just said, you do it for us, Moses. We don't want to do it. But it's interesting that in Deuteronomy, God says what they have spoken is good. 
And that role of mediator is precisely what Yeshua came to be for us. And we need that, right? So there's something good about that arrangement. Even though it seems like a step backwards in spiritual growth, and that's how a lot of people interpret it, I think when you take what, what God says about it in Deuteronomy, that there's something, that there's a paradigm here that's being set that will ultimately be fulfilled in Messiah. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's another huge thing about, um, this is what makes the new covenant the new covenant, is that Messiah is that intermediary for us. And he's the one that brings all these good blessings about. Paul says, if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Right? If, there is, if there is glory at Mount Sinai where the people did not hold up their end of the, of the bargain, they did not keep the covenant, they broke the covenant, and they died, how much greater will it be when Israel is filled with the Spirit and empowered to walk in Torah? Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. So Paul's, I, I, I mean, I think really this is just like what Paul's talking about in Romans 11. He's wrestling with why is it that the Jewish people, his brothers and sisters, have not recognized Messiah. Now, a lot of them did, right? But the majority, and especially the leaders, rejected Yeshua. Why is this? He says, there's a veil. There's a veil that prevents them from being able to read the Torah, from being able to read the scriptures, from being able to read about that covenant that was made in Exodus and see Messiah. Because only through Messiah is the veil taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, right? What happened when Moses would go in to talk to the Lord? He'd take the veil away. Similarly, when we turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now, Paul does a little linguistic thing here in his Midrash. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit. What, what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, have you ever... Uh, I've heard people try to make uh, deep theological arguments based on that phrase. The Lord is the Spirit. Um, but what Paul's saying is that in that passage in Exodus, when it talks about Moses turning to the Lord, that in Paul's Midrash, he's saying this is talking about turning to the Holy Spirit, right? To, being, to what is being done in their day, the work of the Holy Spirit in the, in the lives of believers and through the apostles. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, right? Just like Moses, when he went in to see the Lord, he would take off the veil. So it is for us. When we turn to the Spirit and submit our lives to him, 
that veil is removed and we behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Just like Moses would reflect that radiance, we begin to reflect that radiance to others. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This comes from the Holy Spirit. This, what I'm suggesting is that Paul's describing God's mysterious plan to conceal Messiah from the Jewish people until the eschaton, until the, the end times. In that he's describing not just his present ministry, but the future acceptance of Israel as having glory that surpasses the letters on stone. Uh, I just want to read the first little bit of chapter 4 as well, because he continues this metaphor for a little bit. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercies of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So he's, he's still using that analogy of the veil, right? Because what happened to, to the people who were under the ministry of death and condemnation, Moses had the veil over his face, right? So the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Uh, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Messiah, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Yeshua Messiah's Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Yeshua's sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Yeshua the Messiah. Now it's not just Moses' face anymore, it's Yeshua's face. It's, I think it's really fascinating how Paul is unpacking that story and applying it and in, in like... Um, you know, really digging into the details to make this midrash about what's going on in his day and about the future of the new covenant. So, in other words, letter and spirit, as Paul's contrasting them here, they represent two different approaches to Torah, one without the spirit and one with the spirit. This is a quote from Tim Haig. Paul's use of the word letter conveys the idea of attempting to live according to God's ways without the indwelling spirit. This only produces death. But when the spirit of God illumines the word of God and empowers the believer to live in accordance with the living word, this brings life. Paul does not contrast the Torah and the spirit, but teaches their necessary connection. All right. So... I believe that when Paul contrasts letter and spirit, he's contrasting these two different ways of approaching Torah. And I just want to look at a couple, the, the other examples in Romans where Paul uses this phrase to see if it fits. Let's look at Romans chapter 2. Okay, where are we? Here, at the end of the chapter. Uh, verse 25, for circumcision is indeed is of value if you obey the Torah, but if you break the Torah, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the Torah, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the Torah will condemn you who have the letter and circumcision but break the Torah. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So notice that Paul is contrasting two types of people. He's contrasting, on the one hand, a person who is circumcised and has the letter, but breaks the Torah. And then the other person is not circumcised, does not have the letter, but keeps the Torah. Right? This one is condemned, and this one is justified, according to Paul. It's obvious in this passage that letter is not the Torah, right? Because the one who doesn't have the letter is the one who keeps the Torah. The one who has the letter is the one who breaks the Torah. Let's look at Romans chapter 7. Um, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Messiah, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What is that which held us captive? You look in the context of Romans, and he talks about something that held us captive. What is it? It's not the Torah. Our old nature? Um, I guess, yeah, it's sin. Sin held us captive. So we're, we're released from the condemnation of Torah, having died to sin so that we can serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the letter. I think, I mean, he's saying the same thing again, really, right? It's not a contrast between Torah and no Torah. It's not a contrast between Torah and the spirit. It's a contrast between following God through the empowerment of the Spirit versus being held captive to sin and under the condemnation of the Torah. And the, the rest of chapter 7, which we've already looked at in the previous session, is really just embellishing on that theme, right? When I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do, it's not me working, it's sin dwelling in me that's at work, right? O wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Thanks be to God through Yeshua Messiah our Lord. So then I serve the Torah of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What's the law of sin? Being held captive in sin so that we break the Torah. Not being able to keep the Torah, right? Because we can't on our own. But through the Spirit, we can. With our hearts transformed to want to please God, we can. And that's why he goes on in, verse, in chapter 8. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. For the Torah of the Spirit of life has set you free in Messiah Yeshua from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When we walk in the Spirit, we're empowered to keep Torah. What we can't do on our own and what the Torah can't do for us on its own, God did by dying, sending his Son to die, and filling us with his Spirit, um, for those who, have the, who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's Torah. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We can't keep Torah when we're in the flesh. Not only... Can we not please God? We don't even want to. We're hostile to God when we're in the flesh. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. What does that imply? That we're able to keep Torah. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Messiah does not belong to him. But if Messiah is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Messiah Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That passage really just sums up everything we've been talking about in the last two sessions. If we live in the flesh, we will die. If we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if through the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. The Torah exhorts us to choose life. I feel like there's nothing I can really add to that. Sure. Well, let's just close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have set us free through your son, Yeshua, to live a life that is um, in accordance with your word. Thank you, Father, that even when we make mistakes, you are there and you are ready to forgive us when we confess our sins to you and acknowledge our need of you. Father, I ask that you would equip us and empower us to to live a life that is pleasing to you and that uh, as we go on from here that you would guide our discussion and that you would be pleased in us we pray in yeshua's name amen thanks for listening to this audio teaching the goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.